Heavenly Father, thank you that we are once again together celebrating all that you've done in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word and the way that it shows us who you are, the way that you speak through it and that you're speaking to us this morning through it. Help us all to listen carefully to Jesus, to love him, to trust him, and follow him all the more as we listen. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like every family has that person in the family that's the rural police guy. And little admission, in my family, that was me. When I was a kid, as a toddler, every single rule or pattern or habit in my family was excuse for me to try to get my siblings in trouble. Whether it was the please and thank you rule, if they asked for something and they didn't say please within a second or two, I was in there. I was crouching out ready. Uh, Whether it was how much time we were allowed to look at the TV or how much we were allowed to have for our um, allowance and all sorts of things, I was there ready to catch my siblings when things went wrong. These things that my parents had given us as patterns to show us what it looks like to live well together, uh, as well as things that were actually for our good, not just limits or things for punishment, but things of blessing. Um, I was there trying to catch them out and trying to get them in trouble. It's that kind of climate that we're coming into now in this passage in Luke 6. Um, We haven't looked at the rest of chapter 5 after we had the paralyzed man last week. But if you look at that yourself, you'll see throughout it a rising heat of opposition to Jesus, of people disputing him and asking questions of him and starting to try to trap him out. There was disputes about the people he was spending time with and then what his disciples were doing and if they were good Jews or not. And that's the sort of thing that we're landing into here as we're encountering Jesus again. Uh, We're dealing with two instances, two different Sabbath days where he shows us the sort of authority he has and demonstrates it. He shows us how he uses that authority, not for his own gain, but with compassion and love, uh, and shows us how not to respond to him and how to respond to him well. And so let's have a look at that from the start of chapter 6, and I'll read out verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? We're zooming in to a particular Sabbath day. We don't know which one, it's just a Sabbath. And Jesus is out with his disciples and it seems like his disciples are hungry because they're around the grain And they're doing what's normally allowed among the people in getting some of the extras of the grain for themselves for food. But the Pharisees are out to try to get them again. They're there saying, why are you doing this? Why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? 
The Sabbath was something that was at the core of what it looked like, especially externally, to be part of the Jewish community. It was instituted and first introduced in the Genesis creation story where God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested and he claims and introduced this sort of pattern throughout the rest of the Bible. He invites them in the law that he gives down to Moses and explains further to observe the Sabbath day of rest and it had particular requirements and rules around how to do it. The purpose of it, though, wasn't just to have some sort of rule to follow, some sort of special day, be like, oh, the Jews are Sabbath people. It was to continue to remind them and show the communities around them of their dependence on God. They had to be ready to have a day where they weren't working, they weren't doing special things, normal things, a day that was focused on and concentrated on God, that was holy and dependent on him. A day that meant that they didn't mesh well with the surrounding cultures, people who would come in and try to trade and do stuff with goods there when they're going, no, we're not dealing with this. They were a set-apart people, and this Sabbath day that was instituted every week was part of what God did to show them who he was, how they're to treat him, and how to be separate as a community. And so it does seem like the disciples of Jesus are not dealing with the normal rules of the Sabbath. People shouldn't be out and grabbing food to eat for themselves. Maybe in verse 1, there's also this idea that it's not just that they're plucking it, but that they're rubbing it in their hands to get it out. They're doing extra work. Perhaps the grain fields were even a bit further away, so the tradition of not walking too far might have been broken. A few different things are all going on to show, hey, this isn't normal. And the Pharisees are picking up on it well. They're saying, hey, what are you doing? This isn't according to the Sabbath law. But Jesus goes on to explain in verses 3 and 4 and 5 what is going on. Let me read from 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? he and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's casting their eyes back to this story from a long time before of David when he was fleeing from Saul David, the most significant king in Israel's history before, David whose lineage comes down to Jesus, David who's like this model of what the Messiah to come would be like, they're casting their eyes back there to what happened with him while he was fleeing. His people were hungry and they didn't just need food. If you look in 1 Samuel 21, where this is from, they needed a few different things. Um, But they were given food to eat, the special bread of the presence, even though it was not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat it. Jesus seems to be saying that this king and representative of the people had a dire need, him and those who were with him, 
and it was right thing. It wasn't a question thing back then to be making what feels like an exception to the normal rules to have this food supplied in this moment of need. If this is right for David, how much more so for Jesus? With the sort of claims we've heard about him, the claims of him having authority that is like God's, his claims that are matching up with the promise of being God's Messiah. How much more so if it was right for David to take what normally would not be okay in this moment of need than it would be for Jesus and his disciples? But it doesn't just leave it there. In verse 5, he makes this humongous claim that the Son of Man, this title that Jesus uses himself, that Josh explained from last week, has this picture from Daniel 7 of this divine man. This Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the boss of it. He rules over it. He has power over it. He shows people what it's about. He helps people see what God's word means. He is the one who has authority. I can imagine, we don't see the, the Pharisees reply here, but I can imagine them hearing this and going, gosh, this is another thing that Jesus is taking a power grab of. Those that were in religious leadership at the time, they're the ones who are looking after and making sure people are doing the right thing under the law. They're making sure people are following it. But Jesus is going, no, I'm above you guys. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who shows you what it is for, explains it to you, interprets it for you, who is the master of it. Not you, no one else. And so listen to me. He's making this huge claim that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And there's nothing else of the story. And I think if we were just looking at this passage in isolation, it would be quite hard to piece together more of what Jesus is trying to claim with this. But much like last week where we saw this claim that Jesus has authority to forgive sins, and then he makes a demonstration through something else, that helps them see that he really did have that authority, the next Sabbath that we see is another picture of this. He, um, the Luke says on verse 6, on another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. We see an even more intense situation than before. It's not just Jesus doing something and the Pharisees making note of it. They're there waiting for Jesus to do something that they can accuse him for. Jesus, as usual, he's teaching, he's in the synagogue, so it probably means he's in the center of this big gathering of Jewish people, and there's this man with a withered hand, and Luke is sure to say it's not just any hand, it's his right hand, which in the culture at the time, even more so than now, was really significant for work and livelihood. This guy was there, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew Jesus could heal. They'd seen it, everyone had seen it, 
And so they were thinking, okay, there's this guy here. He's got a problem. Don't care about him. Is Jesus going to break the rules? Is Jesus going to heal him, do this marvellous thing that last week we saw was only from God so we can trap him, so we can capture him, so we can accuse him, so we can ridicule him perhaps? This man with great need is in their midst, in the sidelines, and they're trying to trap Jesus. But much like last week, Jesus knew their thoughts in verse 8. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, presumably next to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, to the whole audience, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hands. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Again, you've got this divine, supernatural ability of Jesus to look into them in their thoughts, in their hearts, and what they were trying to do. And again, he asked them a question. He gets the guy up here, this guy who is deserving of empathy, of compassion, and says, what's the right thing to do? On a Sabbath day, what is the law? Is the law to do good, to heal the man, or to do harm, to leave him be, or maybe even to do something like try to trap Jesus, to save life and livelihood or to destroy it? The culture at the time and the traditions around the Sabbath said that if someone was severely sick or injured and they needed life-threatening attention, that was okay. You could sort that out on the Sabbath. But if it was something that was there from birth or there from an injury from long ago or something that didn't need fixing straight away, that you left it. But Jesus has the authority and power from God to heal and to make new and to restore and he's making a big claim here about the purpose of the Sabbath. He's saying that the Sabbath is not to do wrong, to not to forsake or to do evil or to destroy life, but it's to do good, to save life. And that's what he does as he heals the man. The people here the rest of the crowds that weren't the Pharisees and the scribes, and even the man himself, we don't have anything about their response to this. Last week, it was this exuberance of praising God, of saying all sorts of things, but nothing here from the rest or from the man. We only get, in verse 11, the response of the Pharisees. And really, out of the passages we've had so far, this is the best one of what it looks like to be the wrong way to respond to the authority of Jesus. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Instead of praising God for the work he had done, of seeing this man whose livelihood was affected, who'd been probably having this for a long time, this withered hand, 
healed and made new, of joining in the excitement. They were furious, like a word that's like uncontrolled. And they were discussing and probably plotting and arranging how they're going to do something to Jesus. Probably how they're going to stop him. They end up playing into Jesus' own words. Rather than seeing what is good on the Sabbath, of Jesus showing that the purpose of the Sabbath is for good, for people to acknowledge God and what he's doing, to depend on him and healings that come from him like this, they are starting to do evil. They're plotting furiously and discussing what they might do to Jesus. Something that continues and escalates, as we'll see throughout the gospel, and ultimately leads to them having him betrayed and killing him on a cross. Jesus is making a big claim here in this passage and the one before that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has the authority to show people what it looks like to follow God and to obey the Sabbath. He's the one with power that only God has. Not any regular man or not any regular Jewish authority. He is the one with power. And yet you see too that he uses this power compassionately. If you go back, Sam, a couple of slides to um, a quote from Daryl Bock, um, he makes a really helpful comment about the way that the Sabbath is for. Bock says that the Sabbath law was to free mankind up to rest and enjoy God, not to shackle them from serving others or to prevent basic needs from being met. His disciples were hungry, and rather than let them be in this state, Jesus gave them food. He let them take. He was in their midst. He was Lord of the Sabbath. And again, a few slides later, um, another quote from Bach on how Jesus uses this authority. Jesus shows that God does not intend us to ignore acting with love and mercy whenever the opportunity to do so exists. The Sabbath is not some strict thing that's about hunkering down and living as individuals cowering in fear of potentially breaking it. It was a reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness, of all he's done, of all he continues to do, that he does things even on this day even as people rest, God in his work continues. And Jesus uses this opportunity to show them what it looks like to compassionately serve others, to heal, to restore with this authority that he has. Again, this authority to heal is showing and declaring and vindicating that he has the authority over the Sabbath. The same guy who has authority to forgive sin and who later will have authority over all creation, over spirits and over everything. This is the man of authority. And how are we going to encounter him? Before we look at that question in detail and think about how this affects us, first it would be good to think through a little bit what Sabbath looks like for us 
We've just had a passage filled with Sabbath, and you'll have noticed, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, that we don't really fit in and follow along with all these regulations around it. If you've come to church on a Saturday, you might have seen a working bee. In a few weeks, we'll have a working bee on a Saturday that was probably the Sabbath day. What's going on there? There's lots of views of how things like the Sabbath and the law um, continue to affect Christians. But I think the most helpful way of seeing the place of Sabbath in the Christian life today is to think through the New Testament and the way that we as Gentiles predominantly coming in are instructed to follow God. If you look at um, Acts 15, you'll see the early Christians figuring out what is it that Gentile believers, people who are outside the Jews, what is it that they should be following from God's law as they come in? What sort of regulations and rituals and religious practices are required and what things are not? And Sabbath doesn't make the list. There's no explicit commands in the New Testament letters that are re-emphasizing the point of strict adherence to not working on the day, only that all of our days are holy and set apart for God. Instead of regulation for Christians, as we follow Jesus, Sabbath becomes a rhythm rather than a regulation, a constant reminder that it is good for us to not work all the time to work seven days a week. It is good for us to be reminded that we are human and limited, that only God is the one who is always providing and always equipped to deal with the problems in the world. It is good for us to rest, whether it is a day of our week, whether it's seasons of time that we take off from work or in other things, to rest and sit back and remember who God is and what he's done. These are good rhythms and parts of our lives. But to get distracted and to think that conviction around our certainty with Jesus can only come from turning back to what we used to be before, to going back to things like strictly following the Sabbath, strictly following all of the procedures in the law, to do that is to do exactly the same thing that Paul and other New Testament writers keep warning against. In Jesus, the law is of great value to us. It shows us what God is like and what he values, and it shows us the good life under Jesus, but the strict requirements of looking like a set-apart people, distinct amongst the nations, the requirements for a particular people that were called at a particular time are not ones that are strictly required for us anymore. And yet they still help us see that it's a good part of God's pattern to work and rest, to praise him for what he does and praise him as the God who never rests from the needs of his creation. I think the next question to ask from this passage is, how will we respond to the authority of Jesus? As I've done um, a lot of talking with um, younger people especially, authority is not popular, and it's never been popular in Australia. Um, sometimes when people have authority, our responses really show what we're like inside. 
we can respond, I think, much like the Pharisees and the scribes in the passage and be jealous or offended by this authority he claims. It feels like as he takes away more and more of the control they had of society, of their picture of who they are under it as people who are apparently following God's law perfectly in their eyes, yet inwardly corrupt. You can be jealous when Jesus says, no, this is who I am. We can be offended because we don't like listening to what other people say. Who is this guy, Jesus, to tell us what to do? We can be disgusted even that anyone is even in authority over us. We see authority around us treated, treating people terribly, of ignoring those that need attention, of forsaking the ones that are hurting, that need healing, that need service. Yet this is Jesus who shows us himself as this divine man who has absolute authority including over the Sabbath and all over religious practice, and yet uses this not for his own gain, but to serve others, to show compassion and love, to give renewing life and healing, to give hope as the gospel unfolds to all with faith. This is what authority of Jesus looks like. This is what it looks like to follow him as king as we keep encountering him. He's the one who shows us the way to God, who shows us what it looks like to understand and follow his word and who teaches us to obey him, not just out of adherence, but out of love and seeing that he's showing us the good life unto him. Will we respond to Jesus' authority, dismissing it, jealous of it, offended, outraged, arguing against it, trying to figure out loopholes of where he's going wrong, or we see him as a good king who cares for his people, who uses his authority over the Sabbath, over sin and forgiveness and creation and all things to serve, and especially to serve by giving up his life. He's the one to trust and the only authority that stands over all things. I think the final question for us to consider as we look at this passage is, what attitude will we have to following God's commands? And particularly as Jesus calls us to the life under him, that looks like him calling us to a life that's filled with lots of things, of joining together as his people in church, of loving one another as we love him, of speaking the good news of Jesus to those around us, to putting off sin and putting on Christ, all these things, what attitude are we bringing to the table as we seek to follow Jesus and his commands for us? It's really easy for us to slip into this same sort of pattern that the Pharisees are having and others will have in the gospel accounts of following commands and law to lift ourselves up, to give ourselves status, to give ourselves authority, to tear other people down, to give ourselves excuse not to love others, not to serve others, just to care for ourselves and who we are. And yet Jesus and his example and the way of life he shows us 
is one that seeks to serve others and him joyfully. Joyful obedience, delightful obedience, not trying to catch people out, not trying to seize the opportunity to point to someone in their sin to lift ourselves up. He's not saying that his commands are like red tape that gets us in the way of truly doing what we know is the right thing under God. Loving Jesus, loving his people, and loving the lost are all things that come beautifully in the picture of being obedient to Jesus. Never does that call to obedience get in the way of those things. If we ever catch ourselves thinking that, that I feel like I could do the right thing here, the kind thing, the loving thing, or I could follow Jesus, we need to catch ourselves and think, what's going on there? What of my thinking needs to change? What of my attitudes towards Jesus and towards others need to change? Am I misunderstanding Jesus and his calls to obedience? Am I misunderstanding what it looks like to love people around us, bowing to the societal pressures to accept and affirm rather than to serve and encourage and point to Jesus? As we see Jesus and his authority in our church today, as him as king that we all submit to and bow to, what attitude will we have as we follow him? Will we reject it? Will we be jealous? Will we be offended? Will we try to tear down others? Will we try to use it as an excuse to make ourselves proud? Or will we look to him, humble sacrificial service of love that extends to those that are on the fringes, of love that extends to those who are not like us, who are weird to be around, who desperately need to know Jesus and find life and hope in him. That's what I hope each day to be growing in myself and what I hope and pray for all of us together as we keep encountering Jesus in Luke's gospel this term uh, and for the rest of our lives. He is the king. He has authority of, and shows us what it looks like to obey God and his commands for us. Let's follow him joyfully in a way that is good for him and those around us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so quick to point to sin of others, to miss the point of your word, to try to dismiss the authority that your son has. Father, we are so quick to be proud when we think we are doing so well, yet so often fail to love you and your people and the lost. Father, as we keep encountering Jesus, help us to see that he is the one, the sole one with authority over all things, including what it looks like to be together, united as your people in church. Help us to follow him 
to follow your commands joyfully, seeking to love you and others, seeking not to harm, not to destroy, but to give life and ultimately to give hope that's only found in your Son. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.